Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. Today, Opal co-founder Julie Church and I are talking with Shiloh George. Shiloh is a Southern Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Scottish international speaker, trainer, and owner of Flesh Come Ducks Dum Dum Consulting. Flesh Come Ducks Dum Dum is a Chinook Wawa phrase meaning a great awakening of the heart and spirit. The consulting company focuses on bringing greater equity to organizations and institutions interested in recognizing systemic oppression and injustice within their own systems. Shiloh's work supports marginalized and vulnerable peoples getting the support they need personally and systemically. Julie Church, who is also the Nutrition Director and Community Relations Director at Opal, initially was introduced to Shiloh's work at the ASDA conference last year. ASDA, which is the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health, focuses on bringing health-at-every-size beliefs into action, advocating for a world free of size-based oppression. Shiloh gave a lecture at the 2018 conference called Reclaiming Body Sovereignty, Embodying the Intersections of Fatness, Queerness, and Indigeneity. Today, she speaks with us about her work as an advocate in the Body Sovereignty Project, in which she has found tremendous healing from systemic and personal traumas. This conversation will contextualize anti-oppressive work within the work of eating disorder recovery. But Shiloh will also be sharing some of the depths of her own story of moving through darkness with the help of her ancestors. Shiloh, we are so honored to have you. Hi, thank you. I'm excited to talk with you today. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. So what led you to the ASTA conference? And also, what is ASTA? Maybe that would be a good place to start. (laughs) So ASDA stands for the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health. And I think of it as sort of the professional organization and arm of the Health at Every Size movement. And it's an amazing organization that, you know, providers who are working on and are various stages of of understanding and implementing Health at Every Size treatment and modality. And also people, you know, fat people. I'm going to use the term fat just because that's what I'm most comfortable with. And I don't mean it as a negative thing, but as a reclaiming of just simply a descriptive term. So Mm -hmm. just so we all are on the same page about that. Love it. Thank Um, you. (laughs) Yeah. So fat people too, you know, have these great resources to find providers that will work well with what they're needing. The organization is a great way for people to further their understanding of weight stigma and fat justice and how we can work together to really eradicate all this weight stigma that is so harmful and hurtful, especially to fat people, but also can be harmful to people who aren't fat too. That's how I see ASDA, this amazing professional organization, and there's a conference every two years. So this last August, there was a conference in Portland, and that's where I met Julie, and then I was one of the keynote speakers. So I talked about body sovereignty, which is my healing practice for how I've come to go through this, like, healing journey for myself as a fat person, as a queer person, as a, um, a survivor of abuse, and how you know, abuse throughout my childhood and uh, at the same time as sort of this 
body terrorism through, you know, my family that didn't know any better and, and the support of medical providers really being worried about me having a fat body later in life. And so starting me at diets, like at the age of nine. And so having those experiences really set me up to hate my body, to be out, out of it, to be disassociated most of my life. And so I kind of got to a point in graduate school about four years ago where all of that stuff came to a head in that kind of stressful environment. And so I had to, you know, get some intensive therapy and really look at what's going on with me and reclaiming my body for myself and using Native American culture and the culture of my ancestors to help me do that, to sort of have a different view and a different space outside of the colonial white dominant perspective of what is health, what is beauty, what is sexuality, what is desirability, what is ability, and what is, you know, knowledge and wisdom. So I created this Body Sovereignty Project with the collaboration of my ancestors, and it addresses three parts of my life. So it would be my relationship with food, being embodied through joyful movements, and then healing from sexual trauma. So doing things that help those that part of me connect with myself and heal. So in that presentation for ASDA, which I've given several times before, I really talk about my personal journey and what I've done to help myself, what are the challenges and where I'm continuing to go on this journey. And then I also talked about how I've learned to advocate for myself in health systems and what has worked really well for me. And that can sometimes be a little humorous because I'm kind of really bossy and sassy <laughs> when I talk about that. That's and that's been part of my protective factor mm-hmm. <laughs> and just strength. So that's kind of what I talked about there. And it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. I wish I had been there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Julie, I'm curious how you how you took that. that yeah, I, well. I, well, I think too, your participation with ASDA, Shiloh, also was in some sort of an advisory role with ASDA and kind of its growing pains in its that's understanding true. of intersectionality. So would you speak to that role too? Obviously, you've had a lot of impact in a lot of different spheres of ASDA. So I'd love to hear you share about that too. Yeah, really important when you're doing equity work, I believe, to always center and start with race and racism. And I think that there, you know, it's a long journey for any organization and any person. And so they brought me in to do some advisory work on, they wanted to have a community conversation on the last day of the conference. And myself and Deb Burgard had been at a different conference years ago, which was the first time I met Deb in 2012 at a new loose conference. And they had had a community conversation and it went really sideways Mm -hmm. because it wasn't quite set up in a good way. And it's not of anybody's fault. It's just one of those things you kind of have to go through and learn. Like, I'm not going to do that next time. So they, they asked me for some, my insight. And I said, you know, I think it's great to have a community conversation and I think it has to be well facilitated and structured very carefully or else it can be really hurtful and harmful to people. So we kind of went um, with a little bit of a modified talking circle, which is something that a lot of us um, tribal people 
do. Uh, we have talking circles where you hold something. It could be a feather, an eagle feather. It could be a rock, a stick, whatever. And then when you're holding that, you're the only person talking. And then it gets passed to the next person, and then everyone just listens. There's no cross-talking. There's no one, you know, talking about what you just said. You just simply get this moment to say whatever you need to say and that all these people are there present listening to whatever you have to say. And there's no judgment about it. Nobody responds to what you said. It just simply is. And so we kind of did something modified where, where we had tables that were doing that with each other and structuring it so that people weren't necessarily thinking about problem solving and like what they wanted to do different or solutions, but staying with their feelings, which can be really challenging, obviously, for people to stay in the moment with their feelings. So I thought it went really well. And then after, I think it was like 20 minutes to do that, then there was sort of a large group share out. And that was interesting as well. But just trying to bring things into the a conference setting that isn't necessarily a sort of a dominant culture, traditional thing to do. So bringing in different cultural practices and shaking things up. I love and that. I saw you do that and how you opened up the conference too and was really impacted by that in terms of just naming territory mm-hmm. and the, um, I think, a drum song that you then did sort of to honor mm-hmm. the space that we were in. So I, I was really impacted by that and loved being able to yeah be a participant in that and uh, learn and have my eyes open to what I might not see in my kind of white dominant experience and uh, mm-hmm. just so wanting to have my eyes be open to all of that. So I've been appreciative in the ways that you talk about it and I don't know, just come with a lot of gentleness around it though too. Can you describe a little bit more about your specific healing journey and how this has actually influenced your work that you do? So part of this journey for me. And it's, it's going to be a lifelong journey. You know, I I think in healing, most of us are never going to really figure it out or fix it. It's really kind of a lifelong situation of gaining skills and tolerating things, getting better at tolerating sometimes difficulties in life. I really reached out to my ancestors. My ancestors have been with me my whole entire life, but I was particularly very, very depressed one summer. I think it was three summers ago, maybe four. And I just didn't want to be here anymore. I'd been in therapy for over a year intensively. And it just, my depression wasn't getting better. I had been diagnosed with complex PTSD. Like I was in the constant triggers over and over and over, like multiple times a week. It's just, it was exhausting to be so hypervigilant. I felt like I wasn't going to get better. I felt like the world felt really scary to me. And like I was being threatened all the time, if that makes sense, when you're just activated all the time. And I just was like, I can't, I can't deal with this. And I don't think it's going to get better. And I just spent all this time and money on a master's degree. Who's going to hire me? And there's a lot of fat phobia wrapped up in that and a lot of issues with self-worth. And I just was like, I'm done. Like, I can't do this anymore. And so I guess I you know, just sort of really reached out spiritually and was like, you know, I'm either done, like I'm out of here, like I'm going to make this choice or, you know, I need some, some serious help. And so my ancestors sort of stepped in and that's part of my spiritual practice is to hear my ancestors and to talk with them. Some people that's not their practice, but it is for me. And just have this kind of conversation where my ancestors are like, you know, Mia, you can do whatever you want. Like it's your life, it's your choice. You can do what you want. However, you are very talented. You're an artist. You create things. So 
if you feel like you're in the bottom of a hole, which is where I felt like I was, then light up that hole and make it beautiful. Build a ladder to crawl out of it. Build a tunnel to get out of it. You know, decorate it if you're going to stay there. You know, you're not without hope. You're not without options. And I was basically like, yeah, okay. And if I'm going to continue to live, what I want is that if when I run into a wall that I can't get over, I can't smash through it, I can't dig under it, I can't find a door or window somewhere, I need you to come into my life and to help me with a song or a story or a conversation with someone, a dream, something to help me get through that block. You know, I'm not like a a spirit or something. I can't figure it out all, all the time. And so that was our agreement that I would continue to live if they continued to be like my collaborator in this healing process. So that's where the seeds of my body sovereignty project was laid. And I use the term sovereignty very specifically as like, my body is mine. It doesn't belong to anybody else. I am my own. And my body is a gift from creator. And my ancestors have gone through so much hell, like literal genocide and starvation and just boarding schools, so much trauma to get me here. And I want to honor that by staying here and doing the best I can and also helping to heal other people as well as myself at the same time. And so that mantra of I'm not a deficit, the mantra of I'm not going to die at any moment because I'm, quote, you know, morbidly obese, you know, just all those messages from society about, you know, not being desirable, not being good enough, being out of control with food, being lazy, like being stupid, like whatever those kind of stereotypes and assumptions that I try so hard to not take in and make them part of my, my brain and my body and my consciousness. But it's hard to do that, to, to stop all of that. And so this process has been so beautiful to listen to my ancestors and listen to creator who are telling me you're sacred and you're beautiful and you're exactly perfectly what we need right now. And we're so proud of you. And so listening to that message instead of the other garbage that just is like a tidal wave every day. And so I feel like this spiritual practice, I feel like my ancestors influence and being a part of native community, being a part of queer community, being a part of fat community, all of those places give me a little bit of space against that tidal wave of crap every day that I can just breathe and try to be me in a way that feels good and it feels honest uh, and authentic. You've got me crying over here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. no, in such a good way. I mean, it's just I feel really moved by what you're sharing. And I think particularly the image of, you know, you being very much in a hole and yeah. your ancestors speaking back to you of like, light it up, decorate it, like just really both be where you are, but allow your creativity to turn this into something new. It's just stunning. And a message that I think is incredibly powerful. And I am like, gosh, how, how do you teach people that? What does that look like in your work as an educator and an activist? Well, I think that that's an ongoing question for me. And it's one that I spit with my ancestors on because 
as I'm going through this body sovereignty project and I'm navigating this, especially in the first year and a half, two years where everything was very new to me, and my ancestors are always giving me instruction. One of the instructions was, one, you can't just think about this. You actually have to do things. So you need to write it down or you need to talk to people or you need to, you know, create relationships with people who can help you in some way. And one of that is you need to tell people. So you need to talk to people and be vulnerable and be honest and authentic in how difficult it's been, how difficult it still is. And that there's just this, I don't know, just just trying to describe to people where I've been and where I am and use humor, use, you know, difficult stories too, and just be an example. I mean, this is very specific work to me. And I also think that people can extrapolate for themselves, you know, and think about if they're listening to my story of, am I being authentic with myself? Like, what are my dreams really? What are my hopes? What is it that motivates me in life? Not everybody is going to have a spiritual practice, and that's totally fine. But what is it that you really find strength in? Where do you find safety? Emotional, for me, it's a lot of emotional safety. And one of the things that's been really, really helpful for me psychologically and emotionally has been doing EMDR, which is a specific trauma therapy. I think it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's yeah, I believe a terrible so. name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it's very intense and clunky. Yeah. And it doesn't at all tell you the amazingness of that treatment. And I still get EMDR. I'm still working. I take breaks from it. I do it for maybe three or four months with my therapist. Then we take a break and then we do it a little bit more. But that has allowed me to have the mental and emotional space to do the work deeper because I'm not constantly activated and triggered. I'm not constantly paranoid about people and am I going to be safe in this space and feel so incredibly threatened by the world, right? I still have to be careful about some safety and things like that, of course, but it just gives me so much emotional and mental space. So I think it's about talking to people trying to, and it's a, it's a, an indigenous concept of listening to people's stories and listening to stories and being able to take it in and figure out what is this story that I can learn from? What is the story that can help me navigate? What is the story that helps me understand a different perspective of the world, put in another piece of the puzzle and help me maybe reframe how I'm actually looking at my life or how I'm interacting with other people, you know, things like that. So that, that kind of critical thinking skill is really important. And this comes up, has come up for me when talking to doctors and trying to tell them better practices through my story. And the feedback I get sometimes is like, well, I need specific clinical information. And I'm like, yeah, but you need to use critical thinking, listening to my story and the stories of other people to change that consciousness, change your perspective, right? If I give you a bullet point list of things to make things better for fat people or to reduce your your weight stigma, that's only going to take you so far, you know? And then that worries me. I'm like, so if you don't know how to extrapolate when you hear someone's story, then how is that working when a patient's telling you about their experience, about their symptoms and about their fears? Are you like not hearing that, you know? So 
it's that kind of skill that I want people or want to encourage people to, to gain in listening to people's stories and then maybe even figuring out their own story and reflecting on what they're doing in their lives. And I think through those processes can help people kind of figure out what they need to do for themselves. I can listen and provide some questions for people to think about. I can maybe point out some things if they're wanting that, but I think it's a very individual process. And I think just loving people through it, like it's not uncommon when I talk about body sovereignty in particular that people come up to me afterwards crying, you know, and are like, oh my goodness, that reminds me of my life or it reminds me of my sibling's life or something like that. Usually I'm like, would you like a hug? And usually they really want, you know, want a hug. So, you know, we hug and, and we have that good exchange of energy. But I think it's that personal journey for people that they have to go on and, and do that work. But yeah, I haven't quite figured out, I don't think, I don't know that there's a methodical linear curriculum kind of way to help people with this. I think it's just kind of organic and. It's about stories in the (laughs) end. And relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Your relationship to yourself, really, Mm -hmm. which is terrifying. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think you saying exactly taking the risk to share story because then other people, yeah, are able to kind of connect to their own story and be impacted and kind of it just is a snowballing effect, I guess, right? So, Yeah, and, and I'm curious, somewhat connected to what Julie just said, but I mean, I'm curious as well about like on an individual level, storytelling and relationship that builds such empathy and understanding and can then turn into a d- totally different kind of transformation and knowledge. But I, I can imagine that breaking down in a lot of ways in – American white dominant culture institutionally and systemically. So as you do some of your consulting and think about how to bring more equity into more institutionalized spaces, I'm curious how you think about like bringing bringing story, bringing empathy in in these ways that you're talking about. I think that's a really good question. And all the questions you have all brought up are like questions to continue to ask ourselves as we're going, because I think we constantly, as we're learning and growing and our consciousness is shifting and we're having experiences that we're kind of tweaking things as we go, I would say what I do a lot is going into spaces and listening and listening with my heart, listening with my mind, and also what is happening non-verbally. What does the space feel like? What are they saying and not saying? How are they saying what they're saying? It can tell me a lot about what's going on in that space. I use my intuition a lot. I listen to my ancestors. And I think it's from like years of doing social work, uh, doing work where I'm listening to people and trying to figure out what they're saying and not saying and what resources they might need, if that makes sense. I'm sort of using those finely tuned skills that I've had for years and putting it into this lens of like equity and relationship. So I would say some of the things I specifically do in addition to that would be to always be authentic and honest with people. So there's a a balance of authenticity and honesty with being compassionate and loving as well. 
So it's kind of like, you're doing really great. Like, I can see this is working well for you. And I'm wondering about this. I remember it wasn't too long ago that I was talking with some people from a really large government organization in a specific department, and they really wanted to dig deeper into engaging with the community, especially with communities of color. And they're just really struggling with it. And they're like, oh my gosh, there's this thing's happening. You know, we're going in the community and having conversations and like seeing people are sometimes getting upset and then we're uncomfortable because we're the government. Like, so, you know, we shouldn't be getting involved or should be, you know, so just, you know, them, they're, being honest and transparent with me in that moment too. So we can kind of do that for each other. But I remember, you know, they kept bringing up all these scenarios and they were just like, you know, obviously they were very concerned and their, their heart is in it. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't concerned about that at all, but I was just like, you know, you as an agency have opened up a door. You have opened up the door to wanting to do equity work and do this work in a much deeper way and to really hold yourselves accountable in a different way. And so you've opened up the store and guess what? It's, it's tough. It's difficult work. And so instead of slamming the door, which many organizations do, they're like, Oh, that's not, if that's equity work. We're not ready for it because that's uncomfortable. We're going to have to deal with our power and privilege. We're probably going to have to give people more, access to things than we're used to. We're used to being in charge and making all the decisions. And now you want us to collaborate with these, with this community that we're not comfortable. We're not, we just do whatever we want basically. And so I was like, so you're, you're, you're coming in and you're, you're wanting to shake things up and change things. Right. And interrupt that white supremacist culture. And it's terrifying and it feels really uncomfortable and scary. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, and welcome to what you've asked for. You open the door and this is what's on your doorstep. So you dig in and you get help from me or other people that you feel comfortable with to help get through it. And so I just try to be really honest about you're going to totally mess up all the time. Everybody messes up all the time. And that's why it's really good to work on being humble, work on being able to hear critique from people and also to understand what accountability looks like, you know, kind of those like basic concepts. But I, I really feel like this work has a lot to do, everything to do with relationships and being humble because being humble allows for you to be a lifelong learner, allows for you to hear critique, allows for you to understand that you don't know everything and that you're going to make mistakes and that you're going to be okay and they're going to be okay and you can move along together. You can make amends and you can move along together. You just have to keep moving. You can't, you can't really stop. You just got to keep going. So those are kind of some of the, the conversations that I have with people. And then we talk about the specifics, you know. So I feel like I do a combination of what is really happening here? Where are some of the gaps? Like, let's be authentic with each other and honest and real. Also, I love you for doing this work. And I'm really proud of you and impressed. And maybe let's not do this anymore. Here's some other ideas, you know, so (laughs) it's just a combination of, it's a dance really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that definitely seems like work when you're focused on humility and relationship that inherently decenters the emphasis on linear thinking and power Mm -hmm. and like cognitive, logical thinking as the center of all rationale and connection, which seems to, again, get 
get people. It requires people to get connected then to their intuition and back into their bodies. Well said. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So switching gears a little bit, I, I know that you have a lot to say around fat hatred and kind of what that looks like kind of internally, externally, systemically. And I'm just curious about how that may may fit in here as well. So uh, the, the thing that pops in my head first is to say that, and I know this is going to be a really intense statement, but I am an intense person. I do this, especially the work around weight stigma and body sovereignty and all of that, because literally I do it to stay alive, to be able to like, spiritually and mentally or psychologically be able to stay in this, this space and in this world, I have to do this work. It's the only way I've found to not be crushed by it. Other people have other ways that they navigate through it. This just happens to be mine. It feels so good to be able to have a voice. It. I can't tell you how validating it is. There is a sense of strength that has come into my body from being able to be so vulnerable. There's a lot of things I don't talk about either, but what I, I, I'm trying to be very specific about what I talk to people about. I also don't want to trigger people either, so I have to be careful with, with what I talk about and how I talk about it. But it's just, I don't, it takes all of that, like knit, like that, horrible feeling that I have inside of my body and just to get it out. And I'm like, all of these people have witnessed my story and have witnessed me talking about body sovereignty and I'm not a deficit and I'm, you know, um, excited about who I am now. And I'm doing this healing work. Like I'm saying it to like hundreds of people over the last four years. I'm saying it on podcasts. Like every time somebody listens to it, you know, it's like, oh yeah, she's saying this thing. So I hope that it's helpful for people to hear. And it's also helpful for me to like state it. Like it just psychologically feels good to bring everything out on the table. At this point, I'm trying to figure out where, especially with educating medical providers, like where's my boundary with that? Because I've decided that educating providers that need to be convinced is not something I want to spend my time doing because I find it really painful and upsetting and, and emotionally draining and potentially harmful Mm -hmm. because they say they act sometimes and say things that are hurtful because they don't, they don't understand. So I definitely don't want to be doing that right now. I am interested in working with medical providers that have sort of done some of the work already and just want to dig deeper. So yeah, it's, it's about, being able to live in the world and it's that healing process. I I have to say I've been a fat activist for many years and it it can sometimes be for me anyways. It's like, I'm a fat activist. I'm saying these things. And I'm also dealing with fat hatred internalized like all day long, every day. And I, I would say, I've heard other fat activists say this too, that it's like, you're, you're saying this, you're doing this work. But the thing is, is we're all struggling internally with it as well. It doesn't just go away when you're a fat activist. I mean, maybe some people feel that way and have that experience, but I haven't. So I would give you an example. So I live in a super fat body. There's a spectrum of fat bodies and fat politics, and there's like kind of people who are more 
like smaller fats, and then there's people who are sort of medium fats, and I'm a super fat, which means that sort of the there's a fuzzy definition of that, which is kind of like your fatness is or your body in the world. There's a lot of barriers every day. So seating is an issue every day. Getting clothing is an issue all the time. There's only one store, brick and mortar store that I can buy clothes in, and it's extremely limited. You know, the amount of discrimination I face with jobs, with, you know, getting medical services, just walking down the street is sometimes extremely intense, like trying to date even as a queer person. Um, there's a lot of fat hatred in queer community and issues around desirability. So it just, it just becomes an everyday kind of thing. 10 years ago, I had a doctor, a primary care doctor who told me, if you don't lose weight in 10 years, you're going to be in a wheelchair, which is a terrible thing to say to someone on multiple levels. Like not only is that just a horrible threat to make somebody also, it's really ableist, right? It's saying basically that we don't value people who use wheelchairs or scooters or whatever mobility devices. And you're going to be even worse if you did it to yourself, right? As a fat person. Mm -hmm. So just this like intense threat. And something that I learned to add that is there's a thing called a nocebo effect, which is the opposite of a placebo effect. And I didn't know that that even existed. So him, like that doctor doing that, putting that idea in my head, it's been 10 years now. So the summer I had a lot of like inflammation in my body and was really, I had a back, I injured my back, just strained it. It was nothing big. So my mobility has been really difficult for several months. And so what's been going on in my head, along with just the regular fat hatred, is that doctor saying that over and over and Mm -hmm. over. And then me being like, I'm not going to be ableist. Like if I have, like if I need to use a wheelchair or mobility device, like, you know, that is the way it is. And I'm not going to feel bad about that. You know, people need to use what they need to use. So it's fat hatred plus ableism all wrapped up in this beautiful little horribleness. And so I met a certified athletic trainer and a sports medicine and injury provider at ASDA. Her name's Allie. So recently we started working together because I was like, you know, I'm just having problems standing and walking, like something's not right. And I ha- my body weight hasn't changed in several years. So it's not that. So <laughs> I've been working with her twice a week and she's so body positive. She's so fat positive. She's a total genius about how structurally your bones and muscles and tendons all work together. So working with her, she just has this hilarious positive way of talking about the body and we're just making general like kind of very targeted adjustments with activating certain muscles so that the other muscles that are working in my body aren't working so hard and not getting so fatigued so we're just making little adjustments here and there but it's really emotional and I often feel a lot of grief because I realize how much I don't trust my body how I feel like it's going to fail me all the time. Like I'm just constantly terrified that I'm going to fall over. Getting up and down off the ground is really difficult for me. So I haven't done it for a number, like over a year. I haven't gotten up and down like on the ground or the the grass. I miss sitting on the grass. I miss going to sweat lodge. You know, you have to get on the ground and go in on your hands and knees and come out. Like it's keeping me from ceremony, like all this stuff. And so I, working with her though, she's very positive. She's like, yeah, you can totally do this stuff. It's just, 
relearning it. It's just simply doing some exercises and she's just very hopeful and very positive. And I'm sitting here being like, I don't trust that that's going to happen. Like, I don't trust my body like that. And it's been so painful to see how deep uh, that mistrust and seeing myself as a deficit goes so deep. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that makes any sense what I'm saying, but it's, it's wonderful to have this experience, but it's also incredibly painful to, and, and it makes me angry that I have spent so many years hating myself and it just feels like lost time kind of. And for what, for what, for nothing, mm. for a bunch of lies that the medical system perpetuates and the diet industry perpetuates. Like, it's just, I don't know if you know what I mean. It just feels, mm. I feel like screaming yeah. about it. Yeah. Mm. I, I feel like I know what you mean. And the, like, the amount of external distress in your body um, and, like, the the amount of weight that that actually carries. Like, it just, it sounds like it's been a, a seed that has kept growing without you necessarily knowing how deep the roots were. Yeah. It, it just, I mean, I'm so thankful that I, I'm able to, to work with Ali on this. And, you know, I it's just, it's a little, it knocks the air out of me sometimes. Like, you know, the, yesterday we were doing some work and I just started crying because I, we were working on steps and stairs and, you know, I was going up the steps, just kept going up and, and doing like a simple thing, but it just hurt my body. And also I was so frustrated. Like, why can't I do this simple thing anymore? Like what happened? And, you know, again, these, these negative things pop into my head that I've been told about myself and I'm just trying to let them go, you know, let them just leave. You know what I mean? Like, that's not true. And, and I feel like so much of this body reclamation is about unlearning all this stuff and then relearning. And the thing is, is that when it comes to food and it comes to, I'm thinking of food in particular and moving your body, like when we were, a, a lot of us, when we were born and growing up, we did those things just naturally. You know, and now a lot of us in that like reclamation, like at least myself, it's like looking back at how I was at four or five, like what was my relationship with food at four or five? What what was my relationship to movement at that time? It was dreadful and it was just this natural process. So yeah, I think I, I still struggle with feeling a lot of anger and grief um, that I've lost that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much that gets taken away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you want to learn more about Shiloh and her work, please make sure that you check out the show notes in the description of the episode in your podcast app. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't before. We would love to have you be aware of when our next releases are. And if you want to, please also leave a review. That can be a really helpful way for people to find us that are interested in the same kind of content that maybe you are. Thanks again to Jackstra Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Hope you join us next time. Bye.